You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on his yoke. We are pressing into his promise of true life. Oh man, so much greeting going on. I'll try again. Peace be with you. Great. Uh, If you would, as you're able, um, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in Matthew 8 today, starting in verse 18. If you have your Bible, please turn there. If you don't, you can follow along in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he instructed his disciples to cross to the other side of the lake. Then one of the teachers of religious law said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus replied, Foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place even to lay his head. Another of his disciples said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me now. Let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Then Jesus got into the boat and started across the lake with his disciples. Suddenly a fierce storm struck the lake with waves breaking into the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him up shouting, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. Jesus responded, why are you afraid? You have so little faith. Then he got up and rebuked the wind and waves, and suddenly there was a great calm. The disciples were amazed. Who is this man, they asked. Even the winds and waves obey him. When Jesus arrived on the other side of the lake in the region of the Gadarenes, two men who were possessed by demons met him. They came out of the tombs and were so violent that no one could go through that area. They began screaming at him, Why are you interfering with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torture us before God's appointed time? There happened to be a large large herd of pigs feeding in the distance, so the demons begged, If you cast us out, send us into that herd of pigs. All right, go, Jesus commanded them. So the demons came out of the men and entered the pigs, and the whole herd plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. The herdsmen fled to the nearby town, telling everyone what happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the the entire town came out to meet Jesus, but they begged him to go away and leave them alone. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as humble servants. We're so thankful for the opportunity to study your word, God, and see the authority that our King Jesus has, even here, even now. As we study your word, help us to have open hearts Spirit, we ask and plead with you that you would illuminate this text for us afresh, that we would not just know more Bible facts, but we would be moved towards transformation, that this gospel message would truly change us from the inside out. We ask all of this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so as we press on today in our sermon series in the book of Matthew, we come to a place... In Matthew 8, that is discussing Jesus' authority. So last week, if you remember, we looked at Jesus' authority over diseases. This week, we're going to look at his authority over disciples, over disasters, and over demons. And as we've seen before, the book of Matthew, it's a book about Jesus, who is this, uh, the king of God's new kingdom. And it's telling us what it looks like as kingdom citizens to be submitted to and shaped by King Jesus. The reality, though, is that even those who are kingdom citizens, 
we're tempted to find our allegiances to drift elsewhere. That's part of being human. It's remembering that we will often let the king down. We will often um, go, I guess, awry, astray. We will shift our allegiances. Now, historically in the church, this, this idea is referred to as idolatry. It's worshiping false gods in place of the one true God. In other times and in other cultures, this would have been literal, literal worship, maybe of images or um, constructed items, um, things of the sort. But for us, it's typically not physical, right? None of us are going to physically go and bow down in front of our car and worship it as an item or as a god. But metaphorically speaking, we may devote countless hours to working on our car or thinking about the things we want to do to our car, right? So in a metaphorical sense, we place our allegiances at the feet of other idols all the time. Now, as we look at a text today that's talking about Jesus' authority, that Jesus is serving as king, one of the things that we do see is that we will place our allegiances to lesser kingdoms or lesser rulers, if you will. Okay, so we're looking at idolatry, but we're going to look at it through this lens of allegiance or um, uh, kingdom identity, if you will. So today, we'll see Jesus' authority in three different snapshots, as we've already read, and in each one, what we're going to look at is see how we're prone to idolatry, or in today's language, how we're prone to looking or putting our allegiances in other things. And the hope is that by God's grace, we will, as we look at each one of these, we will see how this gospel news, this proclamation of this new king and this new kingdom speaks even to us here and now as we find our allegiances drifting elsewhere. So first we see in verse 18 through 22, we see that Jesus has authority over disciples. So again, if you remember from last week, to catch us up, Jesus has healed three people. He's broken down social barriers to heal them, right? If you remember, he, he healed a leper who was not supposed to be touched or even interacted with whatsoever. He then healed a Roman centurion's son, okay, a Gentile who would have been considered an outside in the people of God. And then lastly, he healed uh, Peter's mother-in-law, okay, who as a woman was considered an outsider, right? We talked about how in the temple that women could only get so far into the presence of God. So Jesus has broken down all these barriers He's healed all these people, and then at night, throngs of people are coming to Peter's house for Jesus to heal them, okay? And that's where we pick up, and we see Jesus' authority over his disciples, okay? So he has these crowds coming. He wants to retreat, right? There's a ton of people gathering around. He's trying to get away, so he tells his, his uh, disciples that he wants to cross to the other side of the lake. But before he leaves, he interacts with two people. First, in verse 19, it says, Then one of the teachers of religious law said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. So this teacher of the religious law, he's likely a very educated man. He's very intellectual. He comes to Jesus with a little bit of pride about him, right? He, he makes a grandiose statement. He says, I will follow you wherever you go, wherever you go. Now, it's important to note here that he calls him teacher, okay? Elsewhere in Matthew, we'll see that those who refer to Jesus as teacher, are on, it's only used in times of those who oppose him, okay? So those who oppose Jesus are the only ones that actually use this title, which makes it a little interesting. And then Jesus answers the guy in such a bizarre way, right? Look at verse 20. He says, foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to even lay his head. Can you imagine you, you get yourself all worked up? You're like, yeah, I'm, I'm this teacher of religious law. I'll follow this guy wherever I go. Get yourself all worked up. You go to Jesus. You say, Jesus, I'm behind you. And then he 
comes with this like cryptic sentence. You're like, what? What does that even mean? Are you even answering the question? But if we look at a much deeper level, okay, Jesus is confronting this guy's um, heart idolatry, if you will. As I said earlier, being a teacher of religious law, he probably lived a very nice and easy and comfortable life. So Jesus is trying to press on this zealous statement, letting him know that he, he doesn't really understand what he's actually saying. Okay, if I can bring it in today's language, it might be something like this. Okay, a Harvard theology professor, he came to Jesus and said, teacher, I'll go anywhere you want and I will do anything you want. And Jesus replies, oh, you, you will. I'm living on the streets with only the clothes on my back. Are you willing to leave your nice Boston studio apartment and um, the cashmere sweaters and tweed jackets to humble yourself, to live the life that I'm living, a life of homelessness and meagerness? We don't really have a resolution or we see response to this story outside of speculation, but the response here is not the point, right? It's Jesus calling, his pressing on this man's idolatry or his shifted allegiances. Then we see another man come to Jesus and he says, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me now. Let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. So we look at this, we're like, Jesus, what? Did, did you read the pastoral care books? Like, this is so insensitive. What are you doing? It's actually a fairly reasonable request, especially in a culture of honor that the story is situated in, right? Familial honor is one of the most important things to a person in this culture. And part of honoring your family was giving them a good and proper burial. But we need to look at how Matthew presents this man's response. What does he say? The man says, first. Will you first let me return home? So in that, we see that this disciple is actually placing his allegiance first and foremost with his family rather than with King Jesus. It's important to see, though, that, that Jesus is not, he's not putting this, this man's family down. He's not putting down family honor, right? After all, Jesus probably knew that the, the Ten Commandments said, honor your father and mother, okay? He's not saying dishonor them. What Jesus is doing He's, is he's pressing on this man's secret rebellion. Old Puritan pastor Matthew Henry, he writes this. He says, an unwilling mind never lacks an excuse. The meaning of I don't have the time is I don't want to. So you see, part of kingdom citizenship, part of being submitted to and shaped by King Jesus and living in this new reality is complete and total allegiance to the king. Now hear me, this doesn't mean that, you, that Jesus doesn't care about your family, but a life built on your family is ultimately not a life built on Christ or submission to the king. If you remember, when we studied Matthew 7, Jesus says that a life built on anything but the solid foundation of Christ is sinking sand. It's a faulty foundation. All other things will let us down. So Jesus offers freely the entrance, entrance into this kingdom and tells us that kingdom living is going to be difficult, yet we still, even as kingdom citizens, we idolize comfort. So in these two pictures, Jesus is showing us the comfort that we all actually tend to veer towards, but in different ways. First, he's looking at the comfort of the things we have or the way we live, right? As I said earlier, this guy, he's probably living a pretty cush life, very comfortable, and Jesus knows this, so he's asking this man, have you really counted the cost of discipleship? Have you really considered what it means to be a part of my kingdom? 
Then the second man, Jesus is asking, impressing on him, he's asking if he's willing to sacrifice his comfort in a different way. Is he willing to leave the comforts of his current priorities, even if those priorities are good? When we look at Jesus' uh, authority over his disciples and we see it on display, we're tempted towards the same rebellion. We're tempted towards these same misplaced allegiances. We serve the rulers of comfort in different ways, though. What we don't realize is that even here and now, in our situated time, right, we worship and we fall towards other kings and kingdoms, other rulers. Those can even be good things, right? Whether it be family or school or your health, those are good things, but when we make them uh, God things, if you will, they're not very good rulers for us. Kingdom citizens are called to have King Jesus as their priority, first and foremost, and this calls for great sacrifice, especially of the things that we enjoy and that we're comfortable with. Billy Graham, he, he famously quipped, salvation is free, but discipleship costs everything that we have. Salvation is free, but discipleship costs everything that we have. So this is the first question to really submitting to Jesus in authority. He's asking, have you really counted the cost? Do you really understand that entrance into the kingdom is free, but discipleship following Jesus costs everything you have? What's beautiful about King Jesus is that he, he never calls us to anything that he hasn't already done, right? He's not like the bad boss who always makes you take out the trash, even though he never will or never has taken out the garbage before, right? Jesus doesn't call us to things that he himself is not willing to do. He calls us to share in the sufferings that he has already gone through. 1 Peter 1.21, it says, For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering. Just as Christ suffered for you, he is your example, and you must follow in his steps. So living a kingdom life submitted to and shaped by King Jesus, it's hard because there's other kingdoms always vying for and actually warring for our allegiances. But the gospel, the good news of King Jesus, it's a pronouncement of victory over those rival kingdoms. Here's what one book says about the gospel, this, this good news, this proclamation that Jesus is king. It says, the gospel is an announcement of a wartime victory. That's good news. God has conquered our old tyrannical enemies at the cross and empty tomb. And he is leading a conspiracy of rebellion against the old king's grip upon our world. Through Jesus and through Jesus' people, the church, the tide is changing, and all of the enemies will be finished, including death. So you see, Jesus has authority over his disciples, but these lesser gods, specifically the God of comfort, it's always vying for our attention. But the reality, this, this gospel pronouncement of King Jesus, it tells us that true comfort can only be found in the king the one who experienced the actual pinnacle of discomfort for us. Now, life in the kingdom, it's not one of comfort, but one of suffering. So in the, na the next snapshot here, okay, we, we move on to the next story. In verse 23, we see Jesus has authority over disasters. He has authority over nature, all the created realm. So Jesus and his disciples, they get into a boat, and he wants to go across the lake. Okay, when he says, I want to go across the lake, this is kind of, for us today, it's like, crossing the train tracks, okay? They were going to the other side of the lake. They were going to go be with people that they probably 
weren't hanging out with on a regular basis, okay? Th these two groups didn't like each other. They weren't having potlucks together. They weren't mixing it up, all right? So he's going across the lake. Jesus is continuing, as we saw last week. He's breaking down these social barriers. He's showing us that his kingdom is not built on these trivial uh, human boundaries that we put up. Then in verse 24, he says, Suddenly a fierce storm struck the lake with waves breaking into the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. So the word here for the fierce storm um, in the Greek, it, it's kind of like our word seismic, if you think of like an earthquake, okay? So another translation for this uh, would be that there was like a great quake on the sea. Okay, it was chaotic. The waves are crashing in on the boat. And what is Jesus doing? He's, he's taking a nap. All the dads said amen, right? Okay, you guys with me? Kind of dead today. Whew, man. All right. So these storms, they're actually really common in the Sea of Galilee, okay? Some of these disciples we know were fishermen. So if, they've, if they're on the sea a lot, and these storms are common, this probably would have been some crazy storm if they're going to start panicking like they are, right? They wake Jesus up from his nap. They say, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. And in the original language, I love this. It's like just three quick statements. It says, Lord, save dying. That's all they got, okay? They're, they're grasping for straws here. They're trying to ha reach out to Jesus any way they can. They literally thought it was all over for them. And Jesus responds in verse 26. He says, why are you afraid? You have so little faith. Then he got up and rebuked the wind and waves, and suddenly there was a great calm. I just love that. Jesus got up, and he reprimands the sea, right? Similar to how you're like flicking your kid when they're acting up in the store. Jesus says, hey, 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 this is not happening here. And he rebukes the wind and the waves. And it stops. Now, it's miraculous, right, that the winds and the waves obey Jesus just at all. But one thing I, I, I learned this week and, and I'd never um, seen before is that this happens in an instant, right? Like I know in my mind when I picture this story, Jesus gets up, he rebukes the wind and the waves, and then you know the wind kind of like slowly dies down, and then the waves, they like it, at Hurricane Bay, you know, they turn off the wave pool, and then the waves kind of like s slowly get smaller, right? That's not what happens. It says it goes from mountainous waves, these huge waves, to glass-like sea in an instant, right? So Jesus shows he, he's not just in control of these disasters over nature, but even the very laws of physics. So in an instant, Jesus calms the seas. And it says in verse 27, the disciples were amazed. Who is this man? They asked. Even the winds and waves obey him. So the disciples, they would have known the facts about Jesus, right? If you remember last week, we talked about how faith is more than just this intellectual ascent. It's more than just knowing information. It's about being transformed by the knowledge that we have. So they would have known back in Psalm 65, 5-7, that the Messiah was to have authority over all creation. This psalm, it, points, it actually points to Jesus and highlights his power over the seas. Look at this with me. You faithfully answer our prayers with awesome deeds, O God, our Savior. You are the hope of everyone on earth, even those who sail on distant seas. You form the mountains by your power and arm yourself with mighty strength. 
You quieted the raging oceans with their pounding waves and silenced the shouting of the nations. So you see, this, the disciples, they would have known this. But as I said last week, our faith is our lived reality. Simply knowing facts, knowing Bible verses isn't enough if it's not moving you towards submission to Jesus, right? The disciples, they would have sang the psalm all the time. But until the waves were actually crashing around them, they hadn't had an opportunity to, to live out their faith like this, right? And what does he say? He says, you guys have so little faith. Don't, don't you remember Psalm 65? It was about me calming the seas. You see, even as, as kingdom citizens, one of the realities is that we still idolize control, right? Isn't that what's going on here with the disciples? They're freaking out because they realize how powerless they are over nature, and when we do this, what we're actually doing is we're communicating to King Jesus, hey, you're not the king anymore. I got this, right? I'm in control, God. Here today, right, this idol of comfort, it can manifest itself in many ways. Anger, stress, anxiety, fear can play itself out in any facet of life, right? Parenting school, our jobs. Do you get angry with your kids when they don't do exactly what you want? You get fearful when the doctor says things aren't the way they're supposed to be? You get anxious when the bill comes for that car repair and it almost wipes out your savings? You see, all, all of these are rooted in this idol of control. It's a desire to be God, to be king or queen of your own little kingdom. It's all rooted in the same place. When we idolize control, when, when we usurp or try and undermine Jesus' authority, what we're doing is we're trying to be the rulers of our own little kingdoms. But something always happens, right? And it brings us back to reality. It says, oh yeah, I'm actually not in control or as in control as I thought I was. When your kids are dumping oatmeal on the floor and rubbing banana in your hair, you realize how little control you have, right? <laughs> Amen from the parents, right? When the doctors come back with a negative diagnosis, even over your physical body, you realize that you are not God. Even when that, that bill comes through for, uh, for the car repair, right? And you have rigidly done brake pad changes, you got your tires changed and aligned. You change your oil every 3,000 miles, and it still breaks, right? We're not in control as much as we think. Like the disciples in the boat, we, we have this propensity to want to control everything in our lives. But when the great quake comes, right, when all the things around us go wrong, we realize we can't control everything, and we panic, but what's beautiful about this story and the truth of the gospel is that no matter what's going on around you, God is not freaking out. You hear me? No matter what's going on around you, God is not freaking out. Even in this story, Jesus is simply resting. He's taking a nap. It's because Jesus knows his control. If you remember in Colossians, the famous Christ hymn, 
right? It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. You hear that? Firstborn over all creation. He's supreme over all things. It says, for through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Hear this, everything was created through him and for him. Then verse 17, he existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. The hymn writer Isaac Watts, he speaks of Jesus' power over creation this way. He says, there's not a plant or flower below, but makes thy glories known, and clouds arise and tempests blow by order from thy throne. See, when we find ourselves in a place where we're freaking out, when we're anxious, when we're fearful, when we're stressed, it's often rooted in a lack of faith in Jesus' authority. When we find ourselves in this place, we're, we're actually invited into a place of trust, right? Remembering the power of Jesus, a place where we can remember the good news of the gospel kingdom, that Jesus, our king, is in full control and we don't have to be. Lastly, we see Jesus' authority over demons. If you look with me at verse 28 through 34. So Jesus and his disciples, they arrive on the other side of the lake. Remember, we're in Gentile territory now, right? Okay, so they cross over the other side of the tracks. They've crossed a huge social barrier. And he gets there, and these two men possessed by demons come out to meet him. And it says in the text that they were so violent that nobody could go around where they actually lived. So Jesus is putting himself physically in harm's way here. These demons come out, they they begin screaming at him, why are you interfering with us, son of God? Have you come here to torture us before God's appointed time? So if you look at this, the demons, they're pretty good theologians, okay? They have a really good Christology, right? An understanding of Christ and who he is. They approach him and they are actually the first ones to call him son of God. Okay, they beat the disciples to that realization. And then they actually have really good eschatology too. They know what's supposed to happen in the end times, right? It says, did you come here to torture us before God's appointed time? The demons have really good theology. We see this elsewhere. James, uh, the brother of Jesus, talks about this. He says, you say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Yippee, even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. Now, it's important to note here, theology is really important. I'm not knocking theology, but theology is not salvific. Again, faith is not an intellectual exercise. It is a lived reality. We see this here even in the demonic realm. Right doctrine doesn't always lead to right practice. Information is not enough. We need transformation. Okay, so these demons, they recognize Jesus' authority over them so much so that they actually ask permission from Jesus for them to be sent into this herd of pigs. And then Jesus says, all right, go. Jesus commanded them. So the demons came out of the men and entered the pigs, and the whole herd plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. So the herdsmen, they, ru- they rush into town. They tell everyone what happened, and then look at how the people respond. So then the entire town came out to meet Jesus, but they begged him to go away and leave them alone. It's so weird, right? It's like Jesus has just healed these two men that people were literally too scared to even go around. 
And then the townspeople hear about this amazing miracle, and they come back and they say, hey, you got to get, man. Can't, you don't got to go home, but you can't stay here, right? Why is that? Why do they do this? The pigs were their moneymakers. Crazy, right? The pigs were their livelihood. This group of people, they were so worried that Jesus was going to upset their economic system, their well-being, that they asked him to leave. They cared more about a herd of pigs than two people. There's this fascinating connection that we see in Scripture, right, between the, the demonic realm and its tie to um, economics, if you will, okay? The demonic realm and its tie to money. The economic well-being of these people, of these townspeople, it had become a priority to them above all else. Again, that they cared so much about their money-making pigs that when two men were saved, when they were healed, they didn't care at all. We see this elsewhere in Scripture, okay? If you don't believe me, I got verses here. Look at Acts 16, 16 through 19, okay? One day, this is um, Luke writing. One day as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit who had a spirit that enabled her to tell the future. She earned a lot of money for her masters by telling fortunes. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, and they have come to tell you how to be saved. This went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated, he's like, all right, let's take care of this. He turned and he said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and instantly it left her. Her master's hopes of wealth were now shattered. Uh Uh-oh. So they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them before the authorities at the marketplace. There's another story in Acts 19. I I didn't have time for it, but if you want to go look at that, Acts 19, they're healing all these people. They're calling people out of temple worship or idol worship, if you will. And these guys get mad. They're like, Paul and all these guys are going to take our money away. If nobody's worshiping our false gods, how are we going to make money? So isn't that fascinating? One of the ways that Satan and the demonic forces of the world influence us is through this idea of money, economics, even systems. You see, in both of these stories, right, in in the story in Matthew that we're looking at and in the story in Acts, those around the people that were possessed it started to disregard human life. Showed no regards for human life. Rather, they viewed the healings of these people as getting in the way of their economic well-being, their prosperity. So Jesus has authority over the demons, which, which shows us his reign and rule over the entire cosmos, okay? Yet we still idolize consumption. One of the ways that Satan and his kingdom, they continue to vie for our allegiances is to turn the things that God has given us into mere objects to be used to our own ends and then discarded when we're done with them. It's using, so consumption, it's using things in ways that God did not intend 
usually to meet our own needs or our own desires, and then discarding those things when we're done. Okay? Now there's like very obvious examples of this, right? Not to put anyone on blast here, but this cycle of like iPhones coming out every year, it's like, oh my gosh, talk about consumption. It's like, I'm still rocking the 6S, yeah, you know, it's horrible, but I don't need three cameras, right? So there's this idea of consumption, right? That we just buy things really that we don't actually need. This is a common example of consumption. But there's other things that we do that too, right? That definitely should not be consumed in such a way. Really obvious one here is the church, right? People have a consumeristic view towards the church. They use it in ways that the church was not intended to be used. It's like, oh, I I like such and such music, so I'll go there Sunday mornings, but I like such and such as church, uh, small group, so I'm going to go there during the week. And none of those guys can preach, you know, so I'm going to listen to Tim Keller online, you know, right? The church was not made. God didn't gather a group of people together so that then we could just start using each other for our own ends. Or to take another really big issue, and one that specifically we see in our neighborhood a lot, is human trafficking, right? This is doubly consumptive, if you will. Takes the marital act and makes it something that we just use whenever we want for our own pleasure and well-being. And then worse than that, it takes humans, human beings, and makes them the object of our consumption. We can all agree that's pretty demonic, right? Yeah. When we find ourselves drifting towards consumption, okay, it's rooted in the disbelief that God has all power and control over the whole cosmos and that he can richly bless us by providing everything that we could want or even imagine. That's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus is that it speaks to this. He is the king and as citizens of his kingdom, we have all the rights and privileges of the king because we are heirs with Christ. Look at Romans 8, 17. It says, and since we are his children, since we are God's children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, back to our idol of comfort, we must also share in his suffering. So in the gospel, this this good news of the kingdom given to us through King Jesus, it tells us that we have already been given everything we need in Christ. We see that again in Ephesians 1, 3. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. You're like, Nick, that says spiritual realms. I still want the new iPhone. Okay, God still gives good gifts. Look at Matthew 7, 9 through 11 with me. Don't pray for an iPhone, but he still gives good gifts. It says, you parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? You see, Jesus is a good king, and good kings hold nothing back from their people. What's amazing about the story in Matthew is that we know Jesus can make good on his word because of all the authority that we see that he has. The reality of the kingdom is that what the king wants gets done. 
So we look at Matthew 8, and, and we'll continue to see this in Matthew as we move along. We're going to continually be confronted with the reality that Jesus has authority over all creation, whether visible or invisible. And if Jesus is truly king, we either are submitted to his rule and reign or we are not. For kingdom citizens committed to following King Jesus, we will always be at war with rival kingdoms. And as they continue to call and beckon us to follow, we will at times shift our allegiances. But that's why we're called to a people and a life of repentance. Right? Repentance is simply, it's a transformation of our loyalties. If we're prone towards an allegiance to this lesser kingdom, it's repenting and saying, King, I'm sorry, I, I'm, coming, I'm coming home. I'm coming back to the kingdom. We need to remember repentance is not a one-time event, okay? You can't simply walk these aisles and think, man, I'm done with repentance. Glad I got that over with, right? Repentance is a lifetime reality. If you're like me, you, you've probably been tempted by one or if not all three of these rival kingdoms this week. Though we're part of this new kingdom and though King Jesus is on the throne, right, and his kingdom is here now, these rival kingdoms will still try and sell us, they'll still try and get us to shift our allegiances, and even in our own hearts, right? We don't have to have ads to get us to try and chase these things, right? Even in our own hearts, these other allegiances will boil up. But a life of repentance, it, it rehearses this good news, this gospel pronouncement that Jesus has, has shouted over us, right? The announcement that life with God is available to all who put their faith in the life of death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what the gospel is. The gospel says against the serpent's kingdom, against government and economic and corporate kingdoms, against our own little tiny individual kingdoms, the kingdom of God stands firm. That's where Jesus is king. In his kingdom, and this is what I love, right? In his kingdom, in Jesus' kingdom, what he wants gets done. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And his kingdom life works the way it was designed to. His kingdom is not ruled by sin or by human greed or corruption, but rather it's ruled by the king who's continuing to push back darkness, who's reversing the curse, and who is ultimately making all things new. Every week when we gather together, we, we take a meal together called Communion. And this is a pronouncement of the kingdom when we take this meal together. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he, he took a loaf of bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took a cup of wine. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant, sealed by the shedding of my blood. As often as you eat this bread and you drink this wine, you're pronouncing Christ's death until he returns. You're pronouncing this kingdom reality until Jesus returns. Here at Sojourn, our tradition is to break off a piece of bread and to dip it in the juice. There will be stations up here at the front. There will be a gluten-free station over to my left and your right. If you're unable to physically come forward, um, just flag, flag one of those servants down and we'll bring the elements to you. Lastly, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we want to ask you um, just to abstain from this meal at this time. Not because we want to exclude you, but we believe that 
Um, those who partake in this meal are, uh, it's reserved for those who are kingdom citizens, who have placed their total allegiance and faith in King Jesus. So even though you can't take place in this meal this week, we want to prepare you to even take it next week. Um, you can talk to one of the pastors or volunteers afterwards, and they'll be happy to walk through what it looks like to repent of your earthly and small kingdoms and become a follower of King Jesus and the kingdom of God. Let's pray. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.